Hey, welcome to episode number 11 of the BK Show podcast. Today, I'm joined by my friend, Jordan Samal. He is the co-founder of Evo Hemp, where they make hemp-based fruit and nut bars and different cashew butter bars and CBD products and all kinds of delicious, amazing, crazy good stuff. Uh, I would definitely recommend going to Evo Hemp. Uh, if you listen until the end, there's a, a coupon code we're going to give out as well. Uh, in this episode, we talk about how hemp is literally a, a plant that could change the world if the government would just get out of its own way. We bust a lot of myths. Uh, we talk about what it's like for a hemp company trying to get into retail. We talk about some of the headaches of getting into retail in general, uh, and we all around just have a good time. So uh, definitely check out the entire episode. Make sure you grab the coupon code at the end and head over to evohemp.com and, and buy some goods from them. They make some amazing products. I am a huge fan of their cookie dough bar, and I think you will be too. So uh, without further ado, let's jump right into episode 11 with Jordan Sinel. Hey, welcome to the show, buddy. How are you doing? Doing well. Thanks so much for having me. So as I said in the intro, you are one of the co-founders of Evo Hemp, but I'm, I would imagine that's not where your entire journey started, or maybe it did. I, I remember sitting down with you at a Mexican restaurant uh, and asking you your entire story as we were sitting there uh, talking, and about halfway through, you're like, I can see why you want to start a podcast. You ask a lot of good questions. So I'd love to just ask those same exact questions and, and learn about the journey that, that you've had uh, you know, through life and then through starting Evo Hemp, which is a pretty awesome company, if you ask me. Yeah, thank you so much. And uh, I'm really happy that you are starting a podcast. I mean, <laughs> you, you do have a perfect voice for it and you do know the the questions that really make a good show. So thanks for much, so much for having me on and really uh, excited to be one of the early people on your show. <laughs> well, I appreciate you coming on. So tell me, did, did you... Like, where did you get started in entrepreneurship? Is there something before Evo Hemp? Or I know, I think you and Ari, the other co-founder, met each other in college, right? So was there was there other things before then that you were, you know, flipping to make money in high school or or hustling? Yeah, absolutely. So Ari and I were both uh, just always very entrepreneurial spirited. Um, when we were in, you know, middle school, high school, we were always looking at different things that we could sell, whether it was, you know, seashells on the shore or candy that we could sell at school. We always were, you know, thinking of different ideas that we'd want to do um, to make money or for f- the future uh, businesses that we wanted to be a part of. And so when we were in college together, we were college roommates and um, something that we would do pretty much every day would uh, just wake up and say, hey, what million dollar idea did you have? And so, you know, we would kind of do that nearly every day. And finally, um, we landed on hemp clothing, actually, originally. Um, You know, just the sustainability with hemp and just how much it can really help uh, the environment. It can be used for phytoremediation. So it's really good at cleaning um, soil environments. So it's been used uh, to clean chemical radiation, for instance. um, It's known as a taproot. So that was one of the really cool things that Ari and I were learning about hemp. And so that's kind of what got us looking into it as a business. And when we were getting into it, we were started looking at it again as a clothing source. And then when we were going a little bit deeper, Ari's mom actually was like, yeah, you know, it's really cool for clothing, but have you ever looked at it as a food source? And we hadn't at the time. And so once we started doing some research into the food, we realized that it's uh, one of the best vegetarian sources of protein on the planet, has more digestible protein than both soy and whey. And um, it could also be used uh, for things like... um, tuberculosis, for instance. So uh, in the early 60s, it was used to help children with tuberculosis. And it really was just using hemp seeds as their main diet to help feed them and ultimately cure them of of TB. And so once we were learning about all these really cool things, and 
on top of it, how sustainable it is. Um, you don't need to uh, move the crop over throughout the year. It, it doesn't deplete the soil of its nutrients, so you can keep growing every year on the same location. And um, it also can be used for fiber, for protein content, for fuel even. And, you know, it just has all these amazing benefits. And once Ari and I kind of learned that it had so many opportunities, we're just like, holy cow, why aren't we highlighting this plant? So I actually want to jump in here because I want to geek out on this. So a long time ago, uh, I I went down some conspiracy theory rabbit holes. But in the end, it brought me to like uh, learning about this stuff. And I I learned about hemp a long time ago. So first off, I want to like you were were you in college for like green energy? Were you in college for business or something? Like, how did you meet each other in the first place? I know you were in Colorado, right? Uh, I also know you enjoy the sister plant of this product as do, uh, as do I myself. So like that might've been the first route down there, but I want to geek out about actual like hemp. I want to talk about like the differences there. Cause I know you could rant about this for a long time. I think I could too. Hemp's been around for a long time. It's done a lot of amazing things. Uh, and I'm going to say Henry Anslinger is the reason that this, uh, this product has such a bad name. And I'd, I'd love to just rip this apart, man. Like it's one of my notes here of like, let's educate the audience on the difference between THC and CBD. And, and there's a whole bunch of other, uh, like phytochemicals in the plant as well. So like, feel free to rant here. I'll feel, uh, I'll happily jump in. I'm sure you have way more knowledge than I do, but I'll feel free to compliment you, man. Like let's, let's tell the world why hemp is amazing. That's awesome. No, thanks so much for bringing it up because, you know, that's definitely something that we're passionate about. And I love telling the story of hemp in the United States. Um, and so really, uh, this country was founded on hemp, essentially. In the the beginning of this country, when it was first founded, you were actually required to grow hemp um, as part of something that was necessary for the country. It had that much of a use for the country, whether it was for building or fiber, that it actually was required. And it wasn't until the early 1900s that you actually could pay your taxes with hemp. So it is really deeply ingrained in our country's history. Wow, um, so I, I didn't believe, know that one for sure. <laughs> yeah, you were able to bring pails of hemp and pay your taxes with just hemp until the early 1900s. That's amazing. And um, additionally, I believe it's on the back of the $10 bill. You can also see that uh, it shows hemp agriculture hmm. on the back of it. Let me see if I can pull that. I might have to share that image. You're making me want to go find my wallet. So help me out here, right? So I want to talk like pre – so Henry, is it Henry or Harry Anslinger? I can't remember the name. But he was the, the guy who led the charge in the 30s to say like you know, marijuana is going to make everyone freak out and, and murder people. And didn't he have like a timber interest? Yeah, absolutely. So when hemp was becoming mechanized in the early 1900s, um, you also uh, – that was – when you can create paper. And so the paper was becoming very efficient to make through hemp. However, DuPont and it, um, had already started making hemp through chemical uh, byproducts of what they were making for um, nylon and rope, etc. And so when they were doing that, they were already making a lot of money creating paper. And as hemp was becoming more mechanized, they found that as a big threat to their business. Mm. And in doing so, they created reefer madness and started also uh, doing a lot of the propaganda um, with other ethnic groups saying that, you know, it's going to be dangerous to the society. And so that was a really big campaign. Again, it went along with reefer madness. And that was the 
big push to make hemp illegal in the United States, and it succeeded. What was it used for before that, right? So I've seen the things from, uh, like, Henry Ford. His first car was made out of hemp, right? He had hemp steel. I don't know the facts off the top of my head, but it's something like twice as strong as steel and half the weight. Uh, what other uses did it have before there was this onslaught of, you know, hemp and marijuana are bad um, that turned into the, you know, the drug policies of the 80s and things like that? So fiber production was really huge. The paper production, as we were talking about, was big. It could also actually be used for building materials. Uh, beyond that, you could use that as feed for your animals when, uh, you know, like horses, cows, etc. So it, it really is almost endless on the usability of hemp. And um, that really shows into our history. So not only was it made illegal in the early 1900s, the 1930s, it was brought back into the United States in the 1950s uh, during World War II. And it was a campaign called Hemp for victory and you can actually find that video on youtube it was um found by uh jack herrera he found the video that was kind of hidden and uh re um published it so that people could see it but essentially it was a government program called hemp for victory and it was propaganda showing all the benefits of hemp for building materials and for sales, ultimately, sales and ropes for ships. That was the biggest reason that they brought it back. Um, but it was really interesting. They had that whole campaign, made it legal again. As soon as World War II was over, it was illegal once again. And mm. it went back to the same issues. And um, it wasn't until uh, Reagan that it was looked at again as potentially something that they could legalize. And um, during the Reagan administration, they took a look at ha or cannabis sorry, to see if it was something that uh, was actually dangerous. Um, and so while they were doing the research, they temporarily made it a Schedule One substance. While they did that research, they found out that cannabis actually wasn't dangerous. However, Reagan had such a disdain for the plant, he kept it a Schedule One, even though the research that he found was that it wasn't dangerous at all. Didn't he start D.A.R.E.? Do you remember that program when we were kids? Yes. His wife was, I think, the founder, essentially, or one of the biggest proponents of D.A.R.E. Mm. Um, so, you know, they were very anti-drugs, anti-cannabis. Um, and, you know, I think the sentiment behind D.A.R.E. wasn't bad, but I think... Uh, demonizing a plant that has such a rich history, not only in the United States, but for the last 3,000 years of human history is really a misnomer. Look, I, I, I have strong feelings about this one. I'm glad you're on the podcast to talk about it. Again, you have a little more facts than I do, but I went down the rabbit hole of conspiracy theories, and this was one of them, um, and it just blew my mind. The whole Anslinger story, uh, the reefer madness. If you don't know what reefer madness is, go to Google, look up reefer madness, and you will have a great laugh. Uh, but it's, it's amazing to me that truly one of what might be one of the greatest plants on planet Earth uh, has been demonized this way, right? And, and uh, you mentioned a few uses, right? Uh, hemp steel is one of them that, that really um, perks up my ears when I, or, you know, my eyes when I read about it. Hemp concrete's another one, right? It's like seven times stronger. Um, isn't it like antimicrobial as well? Um, yeah. And it's more like elastic than, than concrete. Yeah, and one of the coolest things with hempcrete is it's very natural. They just combine it with some calcium, essentially. But you can literally take a torch to the hempcrete, and it won't go through it. It won't burn it. It is literally nearly fireproof. Wow. And then just, you know, back on the food side, right? I, I believe it's one of the only sources of all amino acids on the planet. It's like it's one of the only complete proteins on the planet. Absolutely. And so I, I understand 
that hemp plants look very much like a marijuana plant. But is that is that the one thing holding us back, in your opinion, of like making this even more mainstream than it is? Right? We can get to the farm bill and how how this has you know become a little more mainstream, and some states are are really getting on this. I think Wisconsin, where I'm at, really wants to like approve this so that we become the hemp you know state. Um, but what's holding this back what's like is it is it simply that they can't fly over the hemp farms and determine whether it's hemp or whether it's marijuana uh that's that's holding this progress back what what in your opinion stops us from from moving forward and and realizing that we should be growing this plant and not monocrops in america well it's really interesting um and i like that you said is it just that it looks so similar to the cannabis plant because that's always something that's really gotten me um just a, a little frustrated because if you look at a poppy plant that's in everybody's garden essentially that is the very same plant that makes opium or heroin it isn't that it looks like the plant it is that plant right. and so when uh they made hemp illegal because it looks too similar to the cannabis plant in my mind that's all bs because then opi uh, you know the poppy plant would be illegal across mm. the entire country and it's simply not and so it goes back to the, you know the propaganda that was brought in in the early 1900s and the amount of money that the businesses could lose by the introduction of hemp and cannabis. Um, Just as an example, if you look at uh, the alcohol industry, cannabis was becoming very much legalized over the last couple of years across the country. And what have we seen to alcohol sales? They're, They're going down. And so I think that a lot of the reason that cannabis has been illegal is because it can affect the businesses that are currently in existence. And I go back to that alcohol example you look at Coors, uh, that's a Colorado company, um, and they've always been very against cannabis. Now, all of a sudden, they're coming out with CBD beverages. Yeah. So, you know what I mean? It's not that they were against it because they were against cannabis. They were against it because it could hurt their business. Yeah, but I feel like, and this is probably a, a terrible take, but why not just instead of spending all your money lobbying against this, right? Like I feel like the, uh, I remember reading the alcohol companies pushed to get it off the strip in Las Vegas when it was legalized in Nevada. Uh, rather than spend all of your money fighting against it, why not just be a first mover? Why not spend all of your money, like you just said, getting CBD into your beer or, or you know what? Uh, any of these fossil fuel companies could move into these green energies, could move into these green products, be the first one there and still maintain their monopoly, which is what they have, uh, all while making the world a better place. And I, I don't understand that this one is one of the most like painfully obvious things that we should be doing. Um, I think that's what made you and I connect because I immediately started geeking out about your business. And I was like, fuck yeah, like, are you going to get into this? Are you going to help with this side of hemp? Are you going to do this with hemp? And you were like, uh, eventually, like, how about we just sell some bars right now? Uh, <laughs> And so, like, I, I don't know, man, I, I could geek out on this plant forever. And it's just amazing how how different it is state to state, too, right? So legitimately just got home like two days ago from getting married in Colorado. Uh, it is so different there than Wisconsin comparing hemp and marijuana, right? Like, you literally can drive down the street and, and walk into a place and buy whatever you want. And uh, in Wisconsin, that's not the case, right? And it's very much frowned upon here as well. So, uh yeah, crazy world. I'm genuinely curious what gets us over the hump. Is it companies like yours that drive innovation here and, and drive awareness? Or what do you think is the, the the final dagger that finally gets everything to topple and we start using the hemp the way it should be? People start realizing marijuana isn't going to make you murder people or go insane. Like, what, what do you think that final dagger is? So just to take a step back, I mean, I just completely agree with you when you talk about the monopolies when we're talking about energy. Um, you know, I, I am in full agreement. I don't understand why these coal and oil companies haven't 
made the investment to shift into solar, wind, uh, geothermal, any of the, the above, where they can still fully maintain that monopoly, employ the same people, but really work to having a company that's going to be successful for the next 100, 200, 500 years, not for the next 50 years. And, you know, that's something that really bugs me. So I'm glad you brought it up. And I just had a, you know, press upon that because it's something that I think about daily as well. Um, and I, uh, when you bring up, you know, cannabis and what's going to be really that, um, thing that's going to push it over the edge. I, I really think CBD was one of the biggest things that helped propel this industry um, at a skyrocketed rate. Uh, I know that it was a lot of 2019 and it's kind of leveled off this year, 2020. However, um, you know, one of the biggest reasons it's leveled off right now is not only that we're waiting for FDA regulation, but COVID has also, you know, put a stall to that just because I'm sure as we've seen with almost any industry across the country, COVID is, has affected it. Um, but the, the introduction of CBD really changed the, the conversation over the last few years. Even when I started the company eight years ago, hemp was a four-letter word. You know, you had to be careful about how you talked about it, how you addressed it. You kind of had to avoid anything cannabis-related just so that you weren't looked at as a stoner hippie right off the bat. Um, and then once CBD started coming to the forefront, then it was, you know, people are taking it and seeing results. And it's not having a psychotropic result, you know, where, you know, THC really affects you in that way, where CBD really is ultimately affecting your body similar to that of Advil or Tylenol. And um, that's what really, I think, propelled the industry. All of a sudden, grandparents uh, of these people were like, hey, I'm taking it for my arthritis or I'm taking it for my Crohn's disease. And they're not taking it to have a, um, you know, uh, an effect necessarily mm. where like THC does, but they're looking to have uh, an effect on their body to reduce inflammation, anxiety, uh, stress, etc. And once we started seeing results from the the older population that really wasn't looking for it in the traditional way that people have talked about cannabis, then I think that really opened the conversation because now it was like, not oh hemp or cannabis. Ooh, I'm scared of that. That's THC, right? But like oh. CBD, my, my grandma's taking that, my mom's taking that, I want to learn more about it. And that really started to change the conversation because now it wasn't something that people were looking to quote, get fucked up on, but it was something that they were looking to benefit from on a long-term scale. Yeah, CBD has its own issues too, right? Like, um, obviously it's opened some doors and I'm really glad about that. In fact, I had your bar, you sent me a box the other day for helping you with some SEO stuff. Uh, and I gave one of the inner boxes to my golf partner and we were talking about them on the tee box. Uh, and the guy behind me overheard us. And I started explaining that, you know, I didn't want, I wanted to say it, it didn't have CBD. It had hemp, and I was actually going to explain the benefits of the seed. Um, and before I could even talk, he's like, yeah, yeah, I take CBD. I'm cool with all that. And I was just like, all right, that, that's cool. You're a teacher. This is getting accepted, but it's everywhere. Right. And there is no possible way with zero regulation and it being at literally every gas station in my town, um, that, that this is high quality stuff. Right. And so, um, I'm glad it's, it's starting to make waves, right? They're starting to see there's other benefits to this plant. Um, but I am a little worried about the regulation. I'm a little worried that there's still like disdain for THC. Cause like the older folks I listen to are like, 
will you know will this show up on a drug test at my work and i'm just like oh my goodness like the education is just not there the education and the regulation are falling behind on the cbd side absolutely no i i think that's one of the biggest things is education like you just mentioned where that's probably the biggest thing that's stopping cannabis from becoming a mainstream thing. And uh, I think um, like we were talking about, CBD was kind of that tipping point where it opened up that conversation, but so much more education is necessary. Like biggest things that I thought was really interesting, kind of funny. um, Ari and I, we've been going to shows, you know, for seven, eight years now. And um, last year there started to be trade shows that were specific to the hemp and CBD category, which was really cool for us because uh, you know, five years ago, there was like three companies doing hemp and CBD. Now there's, you know, hundreds. So it's so, so popular that there's enough to become a category. Anyhow, so we would go into these meetings with buyers and um, we had traditionally gone to meetings with food buyers. They definitely understand hemp and the benefits of it. And it, there wasn't a lot of education in that side of it. But then when we started talking to supplements buyers, um, at grocery stores, it, the conversation got really interesting. They would come in and say, so I know what CBD is. What's hemp? And that is one of the craziest questions we could imagine because ultimately CBD is a chemical compound derived from the hemp plant or from the cannabis plant ultimately. And so it, it's kind of weird that people would understand what CBD is, but not what the plant itself is. And ultimately, you know, like we've been talking about, CBD is just one of the many chemicals within the cannabis plant that really helps aid the body. And um, beyond that, the education piece that's really missing is that everybody has an internal endocannabinoid system. And what happens is when your body is starting to have autoimmune disorders such as Crohn's disease or arthritis, a lot of times what's happening is your body's endocannabinoid system is actually out of whack and needs to get realigned. And chemical compounds such as CBD help realign that. But ultimately, it's going to be the entire cannabis compound. That's why a full spectrum hemp extract is going to be much more effective than something like a broad spectrum or an isolate. Isolate is literally just the CBD chemically extracted from the hemp extract. And though it does have its own benefits, um, like for instance, uh, Israel did a test on uh, isolate and it was known to help with bone regeneration. So it does have its own benefits, but that uh, quote entourage effect that's not going to come until you get a full spectrum extract well talk to me about that so like i know a little bit but you definitely know more so help me understand the other extracts in there number one i want to point out how cool it is like literally every every living thing on the planet has an endocannabinoid i don't even know how to say the word endocannabinoid system like just like we have a lymph node system throughout our entire body we have a system built to like intake this plant, which is just crazy, right? Um, but like, talk to me about the other stuff in there, right? So CBD has become mega popular. I would assume most people know what THC is as well. That's the one that gets you high. But there's a bunch of other things in there that are fantastic for you. Can you can you talk about a few of those? Yeah. So uh, some of the other common cannabinoids are going to be CBG, which is most known for anxiety. So that specifically helps trigger anxiety issues. Then there's also CBN, which is uh, most known for sleep. And then there's, you know, again, a a multitude of other cannabinoids. Um, And then there's also terpenes. And so there's a a number of terpenes that are found within the cannabis plant. Um, And what's interesting about terpenes is those can also be found in other 
uh, plants as well. So like mangoes can have certain terpenes and uh, aid it. Um, in those benefits too. But it's ultimately the combination of the cannabinoids and terpenes when they're combined, that's giving you the most uh, beneficial effect and quote that entourage effect. And um, to that, you know, that's why we like to uh, mix up the type of of cannabis varieties we're using when growing so that when you're getting our extract, you're getting a variety. You're not just getting one type of extract so that your body is going to be able to adjust and doesn't just gain a tolerance long-term. So is that similar to, so, you know, for the THC folks out there, there's sativa, which is more like, I want to go do stuff and get high. And then there's the indica, which is going to, you know, you're going to sit on the couch or you're going to fall asleep uh, style high. So is there, is there like a, a difference in the hemp plant as well? Is there more, uh, one that carries more of the CBG or the CBD or the CBN uh, as far as varieties like that go. Is that, can you help explain the, the differences there? Yeah, absolutely. So um, just like you were mentioning, there are now hemp plants that are f- focused specifically on other cannabin- cannabinoids such as CBN and CBG. And those are starting to become a little bit more popular now. Um, and it's something that we've been looking into uh, and something that we want to offer long-term. So like right now with our extract, we only offer... a not only offer, we offer a CBD heavy extract, but ideally what we'd like to do long-term is have uh, different tinctures that are more specific to certain ailments. And with that, we want to have specific terpenes and cannabinoids in there that are going to focus to that ailment. So for instance, like you were saying, if we wanted to have a, a sleep tincture, we would have a higher dose of CBN in there than CBD specifically. Um, The reason we haven't quite done that yet is CBD is something so new to mass to the mass market that we really want to make sure that they understand what CBD is, get that, um, you know, really dialed in so that they can say, okay, I understand CBD. What are the other cannabinoids you're going to tell me about? But because there's just so much education work that we need to do um, with how the industry is today, we want to focus on that education piece, really get uh, the population brought up to speed on what is hemp, what is cannabis, what's the endocannabinoid system. And then we can start taking those next steps on CBG, CBN, CBC, et cetera. But again, we, we kind of want to take it one step at a time. So it's not just this information overload and they're like, holy shit, I don't understand what you're talking about. Look, I, I, we could geek out about this for a while. And I know throughout the rest of the points, I have my notes here we're going to, but let's take it back, right? So you and Ari are in college, uh, you're in school for business, is that right? Or are you in school yeah. for green? So you're both in school for business. Somebody said get into uh, hemp clothing. And then I apologize, I forget. Somebody mentioned you to maybe look at the food side of it. Take me from there. Actually, Ari and I, when we first started, um, again, we were in Colorado and Colorado was one of the first states across the country to legalize cannabis. And so uh, that was actually the first business that we got into. Um, and uh, that was actually how we got started. So we... Um, we had a warehouse out actually in Boulder, Colorado. Uh, it was featured in High Times Magazine, and you know that was a really great experience. And wait, wait, wait! You were selling weed first? I didn't know that. Yeah, we don't tell a lot of people. <laughs> There's nothing wrong with it. I just didn't know that part of the story. That's amazing. Oh, totally. It's something that we used to keep a little more close to the chest. But as the, sure. again, uh, cannabis has become more mainstream and it, it really doesn't affect how people's perception is of hemp. It's something that we're a lot more open to now. Um, but like I was saying earlier, you know, 
because hemp had such a connotation, it was something that we kind of kept under the rug just because of that um, aspect. But yeah, we had a 2000 square foot warehouse. Um, and again, it was part, it was uh, featured in high times magazine and that was really how we got started. And um, while we were working on that uh, venture, we met a person named Adam Dunn and Adam is uh, definitely one of the founders of this industry he started in Amsterdam when he was about 20 years old. And, uh, he also had a company called hemp hoodlum, or he still has a company called hemp hoodlum, which is a hemp clothing company. And before I actually, uh, met a new Adam in person, we were reading it, uh, high times article that was saying that Adam made more money through his clothing company than he did through his cannabis company, which was TH Seeds. So he owned a, a THC seed, seed bank. Um, he has a you know high times cannabis comp for Sage, which is the strain he created. And um, you know that's really how he got his start. Uh, start. Once we found out that he was making more money in his hemp business than in his cannabis business, that really made Ari and I take a look and say, you know what? Let, let's uh, look into hemp a little more deeply. It has so much more potential, not only as the plant itself, but it's something that you can sell globally. And so that's really what inspired us to say, okay, what can we really do with this hemp plant? And then once we were doing the research, that's when food popped up and was like, oh crap, nobody's doing this and it has all these benefits. We really need to hone in on that. Mm. So I, I'm not sure what year you're speaking of, but I remember when I first uh started buying hemp seeds for the food side of it um big fan of mike dolce the dolce diet.com i've lost 100 pounds a couple times in my life uh, probably need to do it again but back then i had lost it and i was big on hemp seeds in my breakfast bowl um and i remember you couldn't buy it in a you like you couldn't grow it in america right you could import 50 pounds a day from canada uh when did that rule change like is that part of like uh, you know before you started or after you started so um, that that's a really interesting story. Uh, in the uh, early 2000s, I think it was around 2006, um, hemp was actually made illegal in the United States, uh, not even for importing. You couldn't import hemp seeds. And it took a lot. And it, again, it was because it looked too similar to cannabis, um, which is sure. just an outrageous uh, argument. But it took a lot of lobbying from Nutiva and... Um, Dr. Bronner's essentially, or ultimately, that made it legal. And so it wasn't until 2008 that hemp became legal again in the United States. And once it was legal, it was still illegal to grow and cultivate until 2014. And in 2014, that's when it was made legal in the state of Colorado, but not in the country. And so it was a state-by-state -state thing um, starting in 2014, and it wasn't until last year that Mitch McConnell passed the farm bill nationally. But it was a very long journey, and um, yeah, and so it's crazy that it was even illegal to import hemp in general. Yeah. So where where was where's the start of Evo Hemp Fall in that timeline? Is it uh, allowed only in Colorado at the time you get started, or is it allowed nationwide, or or where are you at when you start this company? So we started the company in 2012. So it was now legal to import hemp, but it wasn't legal to grow hemp yet. Um, and so we were we started by importing it from Canada. Um, 
And we always had the the goal of getting it sourced in the United States. We didn't know when that would occur, but that was our goal long term is we knew that this plant was amazing. It has all these uh, benefits for, you know, people internally, for the land, for the country. And we knew that at some point there would be a tipping point. We didn't expect that it was going to be two years after we started the company, honestly, but um, it's been a really great experience. So with that happening in Colorado, which is where we're based in 2014, um, we had a really unique opportunity where we made uh, great relationships with farmers right off the bat. And then by 2016, once everybody had kind of figured out how to grow, they've um, gone through the hiccups and ultimately mechanize their business, we were, you know, first on the list on supply chain. And so we were actually the first company in the United States to offer United States grown hemp on a national scale. Where, where did you start? Right right now, uh, I'm a huge fan of their their cookie dough bars. If you guys want to eat something delicious, go to evohemp.com, buy their cookie dough bars. You will not regret it. But uh, where did you start? Did you start with the fruit and nut, with the, the cookie dough style bars, the protein, the seeds? So the very first bar that we start, well, start with the bar. (laughs) And uh, the first product we created was our fruit and nut bars. So it really began with us wanting to highlight hemp as much as possible. And at the time, again, this was 2011, 2012, the raw diet was really popular. And Lara Bar was also uh, very popular too. And so we wanted to create a fruit and nut bar that essentially had double the protein with half the sugar content. And all we did was actually add hemp to it. We added hemp protein powder and hemp hearts and um, pretty much took what was a traditional Lara bar and approved upon it. And so our fruit nut bars have um, seven grams of protein with less than 10 grams of sugar. Most fruit nut bars are going to have less than four grams of protein and more than 10 grams of sugar. So, um, you know, really wanting to give something that's going to give the customer three to four hours of energy. And, um, you know, that was a great starting point for our business. I think it highlighted hemp in a, in a great way. Um, the whole idea of hemp is it's a ton of nutrients in a little bite. And that's really what a bar, a nutrition bar is. You take it on the go with you hiking in the car, on an airplane. Essentially, it's a meal replacement when you can't get a meal. Mm-hmm. And so that's, it translated really well for that uh, product. Um, what we didn't do though is create something that was super unique to the category. And so it gave us a good starting point, but, um, you know, it's Ari and I didn't have any experience in this space ever before. And it took us a little education to be like, all right, what's going to be that product. That's going to really start, um, moving the needle and, uh, essentially become our breakout product for the brand. But talk to me about that fruit and nut where like, where are you making them initially? Where are you selling them initially? Obviously, oh, I'm yeah, sure there sorry. was some Let education struggles. Yeah, sure. I'm sure there was education struggles back then. Certainly, you guys have a cleaner bar. I bet that was an easier sell of like, hey, we're not giving you all the crap. There's a lot of bars out there that are horrible for you. Uh, Lara bars not included. I would say Lara bars are pretty clean, but like, there's a lot of crappy bars out there, especially back then. And so um, where were you making them? Where did you sell it? How did you even get started? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so when we first started making these fruit nut bars, Uh, it actually began with Ari and I literally just using a food processor in our house and blending up, uh, some fruits uh, and adding the nuts to it and giving it to our friends. And so we would just, you know, make these little bars, wrap them in tin foil, give them to our friends and family and be like, what do you think? Do you think this tastes good? And, you know, we started getting some positive feedback and we're like, all right, I think we have something real. Um, and it was really because at the time nobody was highlighting hemp besides there was the hemp hearts, hemp protein, hemp seed oil, but nobody was like 
you know, making it the rock star ingredient for their finished product. And so that's really what inspired Ari and I to start making these fruit and nut bars. And um, when we first began, um, we were actually using our friend's dad's kitchen. He owned a, or owns a catering company out of Longmont. And um, Ari and I were, were telling his son, Max, about our product and our idea. And he's like, hey, I think you can use uh, my dad's kitchen and, and get this going. And so we were like, that's awesome. And so he was letting us use the kitchen at night uh, for free, essentially. Um, so we could go in after 5 p.m. and make the bars. And, you know, we would make uh, about 700 bars a night. And we thought that was a ton of product. Today, that's equivalent to about, I think that's like 12 master cases. So, you know, that's really very little product. It's not even a tier on a pallet right now. Mm. Um, but that would take us again, from 5 p.m. till probably like 2 or 3 in the morning, we were making these bars. And we would hand press every single one. So I would weigh out each bar. Ari would press it into a little silicone mold that we uh, made by hand. Uh, just bought, you know, silicone, the A and B, and mixed it together online. And uh, we actually used an uh, iPhone case as the template for it. <laughs> and, uh, so that was what we were doing is I would weigh them, Ari would press them. And then we would, we would put them in these pre bagged, um, packages cause we didn't have a flow wrapper to wrap the bars. And then we would use a heat sealer that would take five seconds to seal each bar. And then we would sticker every, uh, expiration date onto every bar as well. So you can imagine how time consuming that process was. Um, we quickly learned, you know, there's a conveyor sealer that you can by that also date labels it at the same time. So, you know, we started learning the, the tricks of the trade to improve the process, but essentially it was, yeah, 700 bars at night in our friend's dad's kitchen. We um, then grew to going into a burrito factory. Where were you selling them back then? So when we first started selling, it was really just going to any mom and pop store that we could find. So uh, natural independent grocery stores, coffee shops, uh, little co-ops, um, that was our main places that we would go to. And that 700 bars, that would last us a couple hundred, a couple months, honestly. Um, so, you know, we really had to start building the business. Um, and it wasn't until... I would say probably six to eight months after we started this project that we got into a real retailer such as Whole Foods Market. Once we got into Whole Foods, we still weren't in any distributors. So it was quite the um, process that we were doing. Essentially, every morning we would wake up, deliver the bars to the stores. We would go demo the bars at the stores, you know, sample them and hand them out. And then so we do two of those a day, which is about six hours. And then we go back and make the bars after that. And so it was literally make the bars at night, deliver them in the morning, and then demo them. And that was pretty much my life for probably two to three years when we first started the company. I love the hustle, but you, you kind of just glazed over getting into Whole Foods. And I know there's people listening like, what the <laughs> hell? I want to be in Whole Foods with my CPG company, right? So talk to me about like, how did you end up getting into Whole Foods? That's a big deal. Yeah, absolutely. So honestly, um, you know, the first accounts that we were getting into was just pure grind. Like you were saying, um, we were hustling a lot. And one of the demos I was doing at a local grocery store here in Boulder called Lucky's Market, um, doing this, like I said, I did two demos a day, pretty much every day. Um, I ended up giving a demo to the buyer at Whole Foods Market. And she's like, are you in Whole Foods? I said, no. She's like, well, we need to have you. Gave me her information and, and that was really it. 
Um, so it, again, it's just putting yourself out there and, and getting yourself known. That's one of the biggest things. And then, um, you know, a lot of the big success that we've gotten today is because we were one of the early companies in this hemp space. Um, and we took a risk in the beginning where, you know, we didn't launch CBD in 2012, even though it was something that we were looking at, um, very closely, we didn't want to take the risk where retailers were saying, what is this three letter word you're selling? I don't, I don't like that. And because it was still a long time before retailers, uh, started wanting to bring those products in, it wasn't until probably 2017, 2018, that it started gaining retail acceptance. And so because we kind of tiptoed it and really made our stance in the natural products and the food industry, that gave us a very big leg up once hemp and CBD started becoming popularized. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, last year, 2018, 2019, Ari and I were getting um, hit up by, uh, you know, buyers at big retailers, uh, at the large distributors saying, Hey, we know you guys are the hemp and CBD guys. Can you educate our staff on what it is? And so, you know, we've, um, done that for some of the top companies in the world in food. I, uh, I'm under NDA with some of them, so I can't really bring it up, but, um, you know, we, we've led, education events for companies such as CVS, Wegmans, UNFI, etc. Um, so it's been really cool. And um, even our documentary series that we released last year, Ari and I got to present that at the Whole Foods home office, for instance. Wow. And so, you know, the, being there again at the forefront and really making sure that we've positioned ourselves um, as a hemp company in the food space has really become beneficial long term. Dude, a lot of people would say that's luck, right? But you've been hustling this whole time. We're talking about 2012, uh, you know, eight years of this stuff, right? And I've got a bunch of notes here. So, like, in the beginning, uh, talk to me about lobbying Congress, right? Like, you had a lot of issues in the beginning making this more than just a Colorado thing where people were somewhat educated. How did, you know, talk to me about lobbying Congress. Talk to me about some of your early struggles of, like, you know, you got into Whole Foods, great, but now you're in a lot of places, right? So, talk to me about those two things. Yeah, absolutely. Um, just going into the stores prior to the lobbying, it was really interesting. So like when we were in Colorado in places like Aspen, I'd be demoing at Whole Foods and there were times when no joke, I'd have someone spit out a bar and say that I was drugging them. <laughs> um, so, you know, those were really crazy things to overcome. And then conversely, I would go and demo in um, very conservative places uh, like the South with Earth Fair and it was really funny because that conversation wouldn't even come up because they knew that their retailer isn't selling cannabis at their store. They know that Earth Fair can't sell cannabis. But when you're in a state like Colorado, when it's kind of iffy, there people aren't educated enough to know like, oh, I can't buy cannabis at Whole Foods Market. Um, so, you know, that was something that was really interesting to overcome is just the stigma behind it and really getting general population to understand like, Hey, I'm trying to sell you a health food. I'm not trying to get you high. I'm not trying to have a stigma behind what I'm selling. It's literally a phenomenal, uh, nutritional product. And it's something that, you know, everybody can benefit from. Like you were saying earlier, it has huge benefits on just, uh, you know, weight loss, for instance. Um, Mike Fadda, the founder of Manitoba Harvest, one of the guys who helped fi find this industry as a whole, he lost a ton of weight through hemp. And that's really how he started Manitoba Harvest is, you know, he was an obese guy that lost, you know, a couple hundred pounds from 
hemp. And, you know, it was something that he wanted to shout out to the world, uh, the benefit of hemp. And so, again, you know, there's just so many benefits from just taking hemp on a daily basis that that's really what started Ari and I to get involved and really start this company was just, we couldn't believe that it had all these huge benefits more than almost any vegetarian plant source, but nobody was highlighting it in the food. And it was only because of the stigma behind it. What was your role in Congress as far as lobbying them? Were you you know, helpful in, in, in pushing the farm bill or like it's admirable that you sat here and, and saw the benefits and kept pushing and pushing and pushing until now it's just finally starting to be accepted. But, uh, you know, talk about that, how you had to, you know, push through some of those struggles, especially with a bunch of old white dudes who probably thought you were pushing marijuana, right? Absolutely. So here in Colorado, we definitely did some lobbying. Luckily, um, Jared Polis, who's now our governor has always been a really big supporter of hemp and the industry. So, you know, we always felt a lot of local support. However, um, you know, with Congress, that was a big thing that we wanted to do. So actually Ari, um, went out with the hemp industry association and lobbied in Washington, DC, and they went and spoke specifically to congressmen, educated them about the benefits of hemp and really started to push this industry as a whole. Um, and I think that definitely had a lot of big, uh, benefits and really helped, get to, you know, where we are today, which is where with the farm bill passing. Additionally, with us going to hemp expos across the country and starting to have hemp expos in southern states like Kentucky, that's been really huge. So Kentucky was one of the first, or sorry, was one of the biggest growers of hemp and cannabis in the United States. Uh, Up until the early 1900s, they were the biggest producer of hemp. And, um, that was one of the biggest reasons that hemp was actually now legalized today was all these people in Kentucky where tobacco is essentially dying, need a new crop to start making money off of. And they were lobbying very hard and pushed Mitch McConnell to ultimately pass the farm bill last year because he needed to do that to look favorable for his state. Do you think Rand Paul had any influence on that? Like, he was a big proponent of it, right? And they're they're the two senators from Kentucky. Do you think uh, you know Rand getting support pushed uh, pushed Mitch over the over the top to push a, a farm bill like this? I think Rand definitely had something to do with it. Um, ultimately, I think for both their benefits, there was so much support from their state, uh, yeah. from the ag business itself, that it was in their best interest at that point to uh, pass the farm bill. If they didn't, that would look poorly um, to their constituents. I mean, essentially, like I said, tobacco is a dying industry and they're all growers of tobacco down there. You know, it's a very big uh, part of the industry. And so they needed something that's going to become the new cash crop for the South. Hmm. Well, talk to me about that, right? So it's a good transition into the, how you help farmers. Talk to me about the difference between this plant and, and what's grown. So I'm, I'm in Wisconsin. You can't drive anywhere if without seeing someone either growing corn or growing soybeans. And then the next year they just flip-flop and they spray Roundup everywhere uh, and the soil's getting depleted. Talk to me about like the difference for a farmer growing hemp first off, like what hoops they need to jump, jump through in order to do so. But like, I know from talking to you that it's more profitable, it's less of a hassle. They don't need to spray Monsanto's juice everywhere. Like talk to me about that a little bit. Yeah. So, um, when we're talking about growing hemp, there's two different things that you're growing. Well, three ultimately. So you can be growing for seed for fiber or for CBD. Um, when you're growing for seed or fiber, 
those are both, um, you know, a very cheap license, a couple hundred bucks, and you can essentially uh, start growing. When you're talking about CBD, that's more expensive. It's going to be in the thousands of dollars. Um, and that's because you're starting to grow for quote a controlled substance. Um, so that one gets a little bit more tricky. And I, it's weird to say controlled substance because it's technically not, but it's leaned that way by, you know, the FDA, et cetera. Um, and so that's why I say it that way. But ultimately when you're growing for um, fiber that you are growing those really big 10 foot tall cannabis plants that I'm sure you've seen photos of, those are specific for fiber because they're growing those really big stalks. And that's really the main thing that you're trying to get out of it is you want that stock production. That's where you go and process into the fiber and use the machines to do so. So that one, um, you know, that's when you see those really tall plants, that's going to be the fiber production almost looks like bamboo. Um, then when you're growing for seed production, that's really similar to that of corn. It almost looks the same as a giant cornfield. You need to have the rows that you would use for corn. And because you're growing for seed, you now need a lot of land as well. So you need that high um, acreage or even, you know, miles of land to, to grow for seed just because that is really, you know, it's something, like I said, similar to corn or wheat. You really need to get that large volume in order to get the grain production. You need to be profitable. Um, however, when you're growing for seed, it can you can earn three to four times the amount of income than you would get from soy, wheat, or corn. Um, you also don't need to use uh, nearly the amount of water. And like you mentioned, the pesticides are, are fractional compared. Mm. Um, and the only reason that you really would use pesticides at all is because ultimately hemp is a weed and there's other weeds that are going to grow as well. So you can either go and pick those weeds that are growing beside it, or you can spray next to it. Um, everything that we take is actually grown organically. So there's no uh, pesticides being sprayed. Um, but you know, that is a way that it can be grown. But you guys have an initiative to help farmers, right? And you also have an initiative to, I believe, help some folks on Indian reservations build up their economies as well, right? And so can you can you deep dive into that that mission, how you're helping farmers, how you're helping um is it white plumed? Is that is that is that correct? Yeah, absolutely. Would you like me to talk about the third way of growing hemp sure. uh, as C B D? Jump in anytime you want to. Educate me, man. So yeah, so I, I talked about those first two, which is fiber and seed. The third way of producing hemp is for CBD. Um, and that's going to be very similar to how you would grow for THC production as well. Um, the focus there is on the female plant because you're really growing for, um, you know, those nice big flowers. And the flowers are going to be what carries the CBD or any of those other cannabinoids in highest concentration. And so it takes a lot more care because you need to really grow it like a uh, tree essentially. And so uh, a traditional CBD um, would be, you know, a few acres, not a few hundred acres because of the amount of care that goes into it. But you're also earning, you know, somewhere around $60,000 per acre. Um, so it's a, it's a lot more profitable, but it requires a lot more care. Um, and then, and like you were mentioning, so with, uh, with Evo Hemp, our biggest mission is to help rural and impoverished communities find economic prosperity through the introduction and cultivation. And so one of the biggest things when the Farm Bill uh, 
really start uh, growing hemp, whether that was helping them find the proper seeds that they needed for hemp cultivation or, you know, teaching them the practices for growing hemp that was necessary. Um, You know, just as an example, when hemp was first legalized, there were no traditional combines that were made for hemp cultivation. That essentially had to be adjusted by farmers and mechanized by farmers in order to make it work. Um, So there's been a lot of those intricacies across the country that we've had to to learn about. Additionally, um, as we started producing CBD, we had this really awesome opportunity to work with the Lakota tribe for their, for the CBD production. And um, Alex was somebody in the early nineties who's been growing uh, hemp and it was originally for fiber, but he was growing it on the Lakota nation's uh, land, which is technically sovereign land. However, um, the DEA thought otherwise. So they actually came in, raided his farm, cut it down, burned to his farm in his house, and uh, put an injunction on him and his family, which didn't get lifted um, until, I believe, 2014. And that was through the lobbying efforts of Dr. Bronner's helped um, get Alex and his family removed from that. And so then in uh, 2017, we were starting to look into CBD cultivation and through a mutual friend, they said, hey, would you like the opportunity to work with Alex and and do this? And it just really resonated with our original mission, which was, again, helping impoverished communities. But we never had the opportunity to work specifically with tribes. And so that was just something that really hit home for us, something that we felt, you know, um, personally motivated to support. And so we, we jumped on that opportunity, worked with Alex and, um, you know, he, he's had a few successful crops now. He's actually coming out with his own CBD this upcoming year, which we're really excited about. And we're now working with, um, the, the Blackfoot tribe out of Montana it is, uh, the, next tribe that we're looking to work with this upcoming year and kind of, you know, replicate what we did with Alex. I think it's cool that, that your mission to help farmers, right? I, I believe when I, when I first chatted with you, you brought up a, uh, a farm that's, that's near me just over the border in Minnesota uh, that you were working with. And that's where you educated me on like, number one, like I knew it was better for the soil. I knew it was better for just being able to turn over your crop, right? Not just having mono crop uh, year after year, switching between corn and soy. Uh, but I had no idea about the financial benefits, but also the education they need in order to to, to have a farm like that. I think your mission is really cool. Uh, and your story uh, about Alex and the white plume, <clears throat> that, that like that really hit home for me when you were telling me about that. Um, I want to talk a little bit about your headaches, right? So we kind of jumped all over the place. Like you started with the fruit and nut bar, you moved into other bars. You guys have a ton of products now, but like, there's clearly going to be some headaches along the way. You can't, you can't advertise your products uh, the same way everybody else advertises their products. So like, talk to me about how you got moving. Number one, you got into Whole Foods, um, but you're in a whole bunch of other places. Feel free to shout out all the places you're at so people can go buy your products. But like, how did you get there? And then how did, you know, how did you eventually, you need to turn into a direct-to-consumer company as well, right? And start selling online. So talk me through all of those headaches. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, we whole foods was definitely where we got our starting point but it was one of those things again where a lot of retailers were like i don't know if my customer is ready for hemp um and it goes back to the connotation that we were discussing earlier um however once cbd started popping off then again because ari and i had really focused on being in the natural food space for so long and getting our name out there um it got 
it was really cool. Last year, it just started, you know, where every retailer started reaching out and it was coming one by one by one. So we got into HEB, Publix, Rayleigh's, Gelson's, um, Deerberg's, Lassen's, ultimately you name it. And we had the opportunity to get into it, which was really cool because up until that time, it was always like, I don't know, is my customer going to be ready for hemp? Is that something that um, is going to sell with us? I'm not really sure. And then it was all of a sudden like, oh, hemp, we want that. And, um, you know, we kind of made ourselves known as the hemp guys and with the hemp bar. And, you know, that's also why we essentially started owning it on our packaging where it says hemp bar right there on the front of the package. Um, we quickly learned, you know, when we would go on sale at retailers, they wouldn't say Evo hemp, they would say hemp bar. And so when people, and so not only were retailers and marketing us as the hemp bar, but customers were coming in saying, Hey, I want to try the hemp bar or, Hey, I bought the hemp bar. Do you know where I can find it? And so, um, you know, that was really cool where we kind of started owning the category as being the hemp bar company. And now we want to really transition that to being the hemp company across the store with, you know, the hemp hearts, protein, tinctures, soft gels, et cetera. Um, but focusing on the hemp food space for so long and really trying to become leaders there helped us immensely once CBD became known because they're going to, they, the buyers went to the companies that they are familiar with and that they knew from the food space. Though there were bigger CBD companies, they don't, um, you know, necessarily trust them as well. And those companies don't necessarily know how to do business in this industry. There's a lot of different programs that you need to be familiar with, a lot of different lingo that you need to be familiar with, promotions, discounts, distributors, etc. And so um, us having uh, a lot of knowledge and experience in the space definitely gave us a big leg. Uh, yeah, I want to jump in there because uh, th- there's a bunch of shit you had to wade through there right anytime i've been anywhere and people are are saying hey target's looking at taking us in should we go in there everyone screams no don't go into retail it's awful right and so you started there bring me into the back end right i love the front end story of how you got to places and educated people but talk to me like a business owner what is the shit show you had to go through in the beginning of like i I would imagine there was tons of cash flow issues did you raise money like how did you handle the razor thin margins and dealing with the buybacks or whatever the stores are calling them where the you know the shrink and and throwing away your product or making you buy back your product like talk to me about all those headaches as a business owner yeah definitely so it's kind of funny when we first started we knew that the margins were slim but we were just like it's all right as soon as we increase volume it won't be a problem um then as we increase volume like you were mentioning we started to realize that retailers want the product as cheap as possible and for free if they can get it. Mm-hmm. So a lot of retailers require you to actually give them the product for free. It's called a free fill for the first delivery of, of your shipment. What? Um, yeah. That absolutely. sounds terrible. So like big retailers, I mean, generally you're offering them a free fill to get into their store. How much are you giving them uh, like your first free fill? So it's a free box of each flavor. Okay. So that's not store. bad. One box. Yeah. But you would do one box. Oh, per store. Yeah. You, you, I love how you added the per store on there. How many stores are they asking you to do? Cause that could, it's every up, store. Right? It's every wow. store. Yeah. So that, you know, goes really fast. So, um, and then you can talk about even bigger retailers. They actually try and make you pay for that SKU placement. So they try and get you to pay $20 per SKU per store. So that's wow. like, you know, let's say you have three SKUs, that's $60 per store. You're talking about, you know, Let's say you're national with three or 400 stores, 400 times 60. You're looking at a 
$4,000 slotting fee just to get into that store. Mm. And then what's crazier on top of it is they don't necessarily have to keep you in there for an extended period of time. They can just say, hey, you know, we brought you in, didn't really work out. So we, we're, we're not going to keep you in anymore. And you could have just literally given all that product for free and gotten kicked out in the same time. So I have empathy for both sides here. Number one, how fucking amazing it would be for you to have a brand where you can tell people to pay me and I'll bring you in here. That's amazing, <laughs> right? So good on them. But then I see the other side of like scrappy guys like you who are trying to hustle, who are trying to like bring something into the world that really doesn't exist quite yet. Uh, and then they're like, yeah, give us a shit ton of money and, and we'll think about putting you in here. And then somehow you're supposed to also give them free product and run marketing so that people actually come in their stores and buy your products. Um, yeah, it's hard not to have empathy on both sides because one side's that's pretty kick-ass to have a brand like that. And the other side, I, I'm rooting for you guys, right? I love your company. So how did you get through that? Did you guys raise money? Obviously, you didn't just have 24K laying around. No, absolutely. Um, you know, so it went two ways. One is we quickly learned that in order to succeed in this industry, you have to fundraise. Um, it's not something that you can necessarily do just off of your profit. And that's mainly because you're constantly trying to grow. So you're investing in the growth of the business, but then you're also dealing with a lot of, uh, you know, the promotions and allowances you have to do with these retailers in order to make sure you're successful in the, that space. And so um, you know, that was one of the biggest things is we were like, okay, fundraising is definitely something that's necessary for this industry. Um, if you're going to succeed, that's what you got to do. Um, so we, we've done that a few times, you know, and, uh, it's just part of the game until you sell your business in this industry, you're going to have to be fundraising. So you pay for a slotting fee, you give them free product to get in there. It starts selling. Uh, at that point, they want to place an order with you. Are they asking for crazy like net 90 terms at this point as well? So you're going to have to front that money as well? No. So once you get in uh, to the store, you've paid either the slotting or you've done the free fill. And not every retailer requires that, but that is the traditional model is that you're going to give a free fill or pay a slotting fee. Um, and then once you start doing that, then the the cash flow starts generating. However, um, you know, there are distributors that when you get in with them, they require uh, 60 days before they pay you to start. So, um, you might be waiting 60 days to get that payment. Um, and then once you're with, uh, those bigger distributors, there's deductions, allowances, OIs, which is off invoice, uh, MCB, which is a manufacturer chargeback. There's all these different ways that essentially they reduce how much they're paying you. Then on top of those types of fees, then you have to pay for marketing programs with the distributors. So you have to pay for an ad or for an email blast uh, or a tabletop show. And though they're not quote required, it's kind of a pay to play game. You got to do these things in order to play or else they're going to go with somebody else that will. Yeah. And I don't want to scare anybody off from like trying to jump in this space of there's a million different things you could sell to be in the consumer package good space but i do want to make people aware right like so i i only sell online I'm dtc i'm on amazon with my pet supplements right and then chewy picked me up and that was my first experience getting into here and they were like yeah uh send us your pricing and then they fought back on the pricing uh then they asked for five percent more on top of that for 
the subscribe and save they're going to offer their customers, I have to I have to subsidize. That makes a ton of sense. Then they're like, oh yeah, and we're going to do net ninety. Uh, so just front us all the product. We'll pay you ninety days later if it sells. If not, you can buy it back from us. And 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 so I knew a little bit about this space. I met you guys at a mastermind where there was another uh, person there talking about getting into Target, and and Bubs Naturals was there as well. Uh, TJ, uh, he talked about some of the conversations he had. Uh, we kind of talked about it on a podcast I did with him. Uh, five or so episodes ago. Um, but it's bananas. Like I, I don't want, I, again, I don't want to scare people out, but I do want to make people aware that this system's broken. Like it's, it's so set up for businesses like you to fail. There's, there was so many opportunities for you to be like, fuck it. Like, this is just too hard. You know what I mean? And like, uh, uh, again, it's very admirable. I admire the shit out of you guys for pushing through this, let alone pushing through that bullshit, but pushing it through in an industry that's, you know, constantly getting told shouldn't exist. No, totally. It, it's really interesting. And it it is like the whole back end of the industry that nobody really knows about or likes to talk about. And I think, um, you know, one of the biggest things is um, as uh, ordering products online through Amazon, etc. has become popularized, it's become harder for these retailers to make money. Um, and it's something that we all know, but something that I think is really interesting is that because it's become harder on them to make money, they lean on their vendors to give them bigger discounts, bigger allowances, bigger promos, where they can still make money, but now we can't. And so it's really interesting where there's that balance of, yeah, you want to, you know, give them what they need in order to get into their store, but you got to make sure that you're making money long-term too. Um, you know, if you're not making money at the end of the day, then why are you in that store? And so it's definitely that balance of, is this going to be good long-term? Are they actually going to be a good partner or are they just looking to make, you know, their margin in the short term? And, um, it was really interesting when you brought up the chewy thing. So I don't know if you know this, but it, at uh, Whole Foods, if you get the 10% Amazon discount, that's coming from the brand. So every time they run a sale uh, or if you're a Prime member, you get a discount. That's that's coming off of your back. So how do they do that, right? So they've already agreed to pay you a certain price. Uh, then they just deduct that when it comes back around. So when you're on promo, let's say you're 30% off when you're on deal. You're on deal for the 30% off plus a 10% scan for any prime member. So my mine's a little more frustrating, I guess, as far as like, you know, they take it up front. They take that percentage point uh, for their subscribe and save. They take two for uh, damages, two for something else, right? So they just take an extra 5% right off the top. Um, and then they also compete with me online, right? Which I'm, they're the only people I allow to sell my products uh, because they have a big audience, right? The, my products have taken off since being on Chewy. Fantastic. But getting them to adhere to map pricing um, has been a headache. They'll drop below, which Amazon will then shut my listing down uh, or take away my buy box because Chewy is cheaper. Like they're monitoring, Amazon's monitoring it. I'm not even monitoring this, right? So I'm, <laughs> I'm made aware when their prices are wrong because Amazon tells me they're wrong. Uh, or I'll get people on my website who are, uh, you know, can you match Chewy's price? And uh, yeah, I'm the brand. I, I guess I'm going to match their price, but uh, it's just such a headache, man. I, I and this is only on the online side, right? And so you're dealing with more of the brick and mortar stuff. But um, how do you ever make money then, right? You're constantly raising money. You're likely constantly losing money just to have this, you know, this exposure to be in all of these stores. When does the the tide turn? Is it just when you sell? Is it when someone acquires you uh, that you finally get paid? There are companies that literally were not profitable until they sold the business. So for instance, Mix One sold for, I think, 70 or $80 million, never was profitable. 
Um, and that isn't uncommon in this space. Uh, but ultimately, getting to profitability is a combination of a few things. Um, first of all, you know, getting your volume up so that you can get your costs down is huge. Um, this is definitely a volume game where the more you sell, the lower your costs are going to be, and you can really start uh, making some money or increasing your margin. Additionally, once you get to become a bigger re, uh, brand, um, you start having power with the vendors or with the retailers and the distributors where you don't necessarily have to give them everything that they're asking, even though they want it. Essentially, you're now a brand that they have to carry. And once you're at that point where they have to carry you, you can kind of control the conversation a lot more and make sure that it's really better for your bottom dollar uh, rather than you kind of bending over backwards to give them what they need. And, um, you know, again, it's that balancing act where you got to give that, you got to give them what they need, but you also got to watch your bottom dollar because if you're just giving them everything you need and you're losing money hand over foot, that doesn't work either because you're just quickly running yourself out of business. Um, so it's just, it's a difficult game, but you got to, you know, be careful. Yeah, but the raising can't be fun either, right? So you guys took over the office of Justin's Nut Butter, which I'm a huge fan. I legitimately eat their maple almond butter every single day in my oatmeal. I, I love it. Um, but you, I, I believe you told me he owned a, you know, a single digit percentage of his business by the time it was sold, right? And I have to assume that's from raising and raising and raising and raising and raising. And they might have sold for a big dollar. Well, that's great. Um, but is, is that the same trajectory Evo Hemp is on where you have to continually dilute yourself over and over and over again to keep this business moving forward? Yeah. And so with Justin, I, uh, full transparency, I don't know how much he had in the business, mm. um, but I know he did well for himself ultimately. Um, but yes, that is a constant battle in this space is that you're fundraising, 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 and then you sell. Um, and so Right now, we're we're working on a uh, fundraise as we speak, and uh, we expect that to last us 18 months to two years, and in which case, we're going to need more capital at that time. Um, so, you know, it's something that is just a constant thing to be looking at. Um, but as you continue to grow, the need for larger amounts of capital starts going down because you're getting your margins up, your volume's going up, and, and that's, you know, kind of going conversely with it. Um, so it's very much that uh, balancing act of how much volume are you at? How many retailers are you at? And ultimately, um, how valuable has your brand become? So is it public info what you've raised to date? Is that something you're okay speaking about, at least in the beginning, or what it looked like? Um, I'll say it's definitely in the seven figures. Sure. I mean, look, I met you two different times at a mastermind, I think. Uh, and the second time, we were like, let's have dinner tonight. And then Jordan's on call. Like you would step out every 10 minutes on a call with some investor. Right. Um, and then we missed, I don't think we even had dinner that whole trip because you were just on calls the entire time. So it's funny that you were raising back then you're raising again. And like, it just seems so stressful. Right. And we haven't even gotten to some of the DTC stuff that I want to talk about, but like what keeps you going every single day, man? Like, honestly, it seems like the whole world is just against making this happen, right? Let alone a CPG company, but also, you know, pushing hemp to the world. And, and I know you have bigger aspirations than this. What, 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 what fires you up every single day to keep going through, uh, you know, getting punched in the face. <laughs> it's a funny way to put it, but, um, it's no, true, it's right? True. Constantly. It's, it's just true. like, Oh yeah, you can get into whole foods, bam, give us 50 grand, or you can get into Kroger's bam, give us a bunch of money. Right. And like, it has to suck every single day going through, the downs, right? Yeah, no, there, there's a lot of, um, you know, 
punches in the industry for sure that you have to kind of just take and and live with. But ultimately, I, I will say that it's a very fun and exciting industry to be in. And I'm just talking about foods as a whole, not necessarily even hemp. And it's really cool being in a space with a lot of like-minded individuals. Ultimately, the the core of the natural product space are people that really want to help heal the world through food. You know, the sustainability, food, and really using that as medicine. And um, it's really cool when you're surrounded by people that really think of it in that way. And Mm -hmm. so I think that's one of the biggest things that's really kept Ari and myself going is just that we're surrounded by people that are like-minded and really see the world in a similar way. Um, If you go to the basis of the natural products industry and you look at companies like Celestial uh, Seasonings, for instance, um, you know, they are a huge brand in this space. They've been around forever. They not only make Celestial Teas, they own Terra Chips, uh, you know, a ton of different brands in this industry. And really, they got their start by growing and selling cannabis. Hmm. And so, um, you know, at that point they said, well, what else can we do? What else can we sell and grow to help people across the country? And so it's really, you know, um, based in trying to, again, help heal people through food. Like the, the organic industry is something relatively new. It's, you know, not that old, less than 50 years old in the United States. And that came with people that were, again, you know, just wanted to focus on offering, you know, the highest quality products to customers. And so that you can feel like you're really getting something that's beneficial to your body. And so, you know, being again, surrounded by those type of people and like-minded individuals has really been awesome. But then on top of it, just the passion that we have for this plant and for the hemp industry specifically has really propelled us. Um, You know, it's just something that Ari and I are extremely passionate about. And now that it's starting to gain traction, we really want to make sure that the growth of this industry is being done in the right way. And I say that because, again, you know, as CBD was growing, there were so many people just like, oh, I heard I can make money and just were bottling whatever they could find and didn't even know what they were selling. And Mm -hmm. so that's why the education piece has become so important for Ari and myself is because we do care so much about this plant and this industry that now that we've had the opportunity to get a spotlight on it, we better make sure that it's getting the right information to the general population and really going to, you know, finally become a successful industry. Um, this isn't the first time that hemp has gotten a spotlight in the early 90s uh, going, but there's disinformation and it's becoming, you know, getting that negative connotation again. And so right now, that's the biggest thing, again, is education and making sure that hemp is looked at as a health food and something that can really heal your body and heal the planet. So you're, you're making a point I make a lot with my consulting clients is like, business and life in general is just one big roller coaster, right? It's one more problem to solve every single day. Uh, there's ups, there's downs. But if you enter yourself into a business that you're passionate about, something you deeply, deeply believe in, you're going to wake up every single day. So no, no matter if you hit the bottom of the roller coaster over and over and over again for a period of time, you're going to wake up and keep going every single day. And so that's life. That's that's business. So you know, find a business you're passionate about. Find a niche that you care a lot about be that person, be authentic. Uh, and, and you're going to make it through every day. And you kind of exude that, man. That's a, uh, it's awesome to see. And, uh, I want to, I want to touch on a few other like random things here that I took some notes on. So like, uh, talk to me about Forbes 30 under 30. Uh, that's 
uh, quite the feather in your cap and Ari's cap. Like, talk to me about that. What, how, how did that come about? And like, what doors did that open for you? So um, that was really interesting. Uh, Ari and I, so we were college roommates. We went to the University of Denver together. And I recall when we were 20, 21 years old, uh, we were looking at a Forbes magazine and it had the under 30 class for that year. And um, in the tech sector, Ari actually went to high school with someone. And we just thought that was really cool. And we were like, we got to do it type of thing. And so something that's always been in the back of our head of something that was kind of an accolade that we wanted to, to get. And um, as Ari was approaching the age of 30, he was like, man, we got to do it. So we just sent in our application. And uh, honestly, they sent follow-up questions. We responded and there was about two or three back and forth and we got it. And it was super amazing. Um, I mean, though it, it went relatively easy to get. It meant a lot to us. Um, they say it's harder to get into Forbes under 30 than it is to Harvard. So, you know, that really meant a lot to us. And um, it wasn't until the year after that we were talking to um, the, the people that are on the selecting committee, essentially. And they told us, they said that, yeah, we, we accepted you. And it was kind of on chance. We didn't know where the hemp and CBD industry was going. And then literally a year later, they're like, we, we guessed we took the right chance on you guys because all of a sudden it was hemp and CBD, the next billion dollar industry. And actually the following year, Ari and I got the opportunity to speak at a Forbes under 30 event at, um, hosting on a panel and talk about how CBD is the next billion dollar industry. So it was really cool to kind of get into Forbes and then literally a year later be on a panel talking about the benefits of hemp and CBD. So does that like feather in your cap? I'm sure it's something you put on your website. I would sure it's something you put in uh, press releases or things that you give the new places you want to get your bars into. Is that something that's helped you helped open some doors for you? Um, honestly, I haven't tried using that to get into stores yet. That's a good way to do it. Um, it definitely is on my email signature and, um, you you have a hat and a (laughs) t-shirt for us. It's just, you know, I think it was kind of a a stamp of legitimacy for, for me and Ari, like, Hey, these guys truly are at the top of their space and here's kind of the proof behind it. Nice. So another note I have, uh, when I first met you guys, I, I, I don't think I'd actually met you in person, but I saw somebody post that you were on the Gary V show. Uh, I'm kind of a nerd for Gary V. Uh, some people love him. Some people hate him. I like the guy a lot. Uh, talk to me about that. How did you get on the Gary V show? And what was that like? Yeah. So um, Ari and I are big fans of Gary V. Ari, I will say is a, like a giant Gary V fan, definitely mm. more than myself, just because he was one of the first guys that got into Gary V before Gary V started getting super popularized. Um, and so Ari has been, you know, a, a big advocate of Gary and just his messaging. And uh, Gary has this program called the four D's and uh, essentially you can pay or you can trade in product to get on this one day event with Gary and his team and go through an entire um, marketing education. And so uh, once this popped up, Ari reached out, uh, you know, prom- uh, presented the opportunity and it was actually just for a trade. We traded Evo hemp product 
for the Gary V event. And um, again, it was one of those things we reached out. They said, yeah, let's do it. And so we were just like, holy shit, this is awesome and flew out there. And uh, it was a really great experience. Um, you know, it was a full day. I think we got a grand total of maybe 30 minutes of break time in the entire day, but it was jam packed with information. I mean, it really went in depth on just everything digital marketing as far as what strategies uh, they use at their firm to what they think the future of uh, the digital marketing is going to be and how to best utilize it. And so that was a really awesome experience. Um, I actually also met Josh Felber there, which was at uh, George's Mastermind last time we were there together. So, you know, it was um, really cool to meet other people um, in this space. Uh, and I mean, entrepreneurial space. So you, you go there for the four D's. How did you actually get on his show or did he just like do an interview with each of the people that came there that day? Yeah. So they did an interview with each of the people that oh, did nice. it that day. And then they, um, they posted the four D's on YouTube, I believe. And it was one of the highest viewed shows was the one that we were on. Nice. I mean, I remember watching that. I meet you guys and, and you're right. Ari is definitely a fanboy. He wears the, the Gary V hat around everywhere. And like, uh, dude, I can relate to him on there. I love Gary V. Uh, some of his core values shine through in my own core values and that I have for my companies as well, as far as like empathy and kindness and, um, you know, hustle as he describes it, I think has been taken out of context that people think they need to work till 3am. It's a different kind of hustle. You guys actually exude it, right? Going store to store and getting your bars in there and, um, just really pushing what you believe in. Uh, so a few other notes I have here. How did you get an Amazon series? Right. Right after I met you, I think all of a sudden you have uh, a series on Amazon. I thought it was just like one episode. I watched it. Uh, I text you a few times cause there's a few funny parts of, of you in there, if I'm honest. Uh, and then like, uh, it was an ongoing series. How did that come about? So and, and um, pump it, by the way, tell everybody to go watch it while you're at it. Yeah. So it was called American hemp and it actually started with uh, a buddy of ours whose name is Josh and um, Josh Hyde. And uh, he was reaching out to us um, just randomly via email. I didn't know him yet and said, Hey, I'm doing a documentary on the hemp industry and I'd like to feature Evo hemp. And um, I was like, yeah, I should give him a call back. Literally that same day he came in the office and we hit it off and we were like, yeah, I think there's something really awesome here. And, um, our relationship grew with Josh and, uh, we ultimately ended up being like the main company that he was highlighting in the video, which was really cool for us and just really cool, um, for Evo hemp as a whole to be highlighted in this space. Um, but Josh was looking into this industry, especially focused here in Colorado. He's like, this is just such a cool story the origination of the hemp industry, um, at least as of today. And he really wanted to start highlighting it from, you know, seed to store. And so, uh, that focuses on the growers, how it's cultivated, um, the difficulties that we have to deal with, um, to get into stores, shipping difficulties, even, um, one of the stories that just, uh, rings a bell for me is, you know, FedEx, we had a shipment going out for a Costco roadshow and FedEx stopped it and actually ended up holding it for 60 days because it had the word hemp written on it. Oh, and uh, because it had the word hemp, they decided that it was classified as cannabis and then they needed to quarantine our nutrition bars. Um, so, you know, it just goes really in depth into those types of issues that we had to overcome. Um, 
And, uh, you know, like you were saying earlier, one of the biggest things that we have to deal with is just advertising. We're pretty much the only bar on the shelf at Whole Foods that can't advertise via Facebook. Um, so, you know, we just have to be very unique about how we market the company, how we get it into people's hands and really make sure that it's, uh, the right messaging, um, to promote this industry. Yeah. I actually want to talk about that a second, but first pump that where, where can they see it? Do you need to be a prime member? Where can they go watch uh, the series? Um, American Hep on Amazon prime. You don't need to be a prime member to view it, but it is free. If you do have prime. Nice. Go watch that. Everyone. It's pretty good. Uh, and you'll get to see, uh, some funny scenes with Jordan for sure. <laughs> uh, and, but talk to me about that. that. That was one of my other notes of like, you guys can't run Facebook ads. Uh, you can't run Google ads. What do you do? Like, you you can't use the same payment processors the rest of us use. I know you had to move from Shopify uh, off of Shopify now because Square will take your payments, right? So talk to me about all the headaches that you've gone through on the DTC side of just being able to acquire customers. And, and then how do you acquire customers? Yeah, so it, it's been a headache, honestly. And um, we've definitely lost customers online because of it. Just because, like you were mentioning, we had to switch payment processors half a dozen times minimum in the last year or two, um, which also affects our subscription customers. And only some apps work with some of the payment processors that we have. Um, so we've had to switch you know, our subscription service three times in the last year. Um, so that's constantly a battle. Um, when we were in Shopify, we were using like three different APIs to try and make it work, but it it made for a terrible customer experience. They would, for instance, order a cookie dough bar and it would come through as a brownie bar and there's no rhyme or reason behind it, but it was just the APIs weren't talking together correctly. And so, you know, Ultimately, we had to just work through all those hiccups. Um, and now we are set up with big commerce, which is great. I think we have a good long-term platform strategy. But in doing so over the last two or three years, we've definitely you know, had issues where that's affected our, our customer base because they can't continue with their subscriptions. Or like you've seen, um, you know, it's affected our organic traffic because uh, some of the back end gets mis- mixed up when we switch from Shopify over to big commerce. And so just, you know, it's a lot of like building it up and then starting at square one again, mm-hmm. building it up, starting at square one again. But I think, um, you know, we finally have gotten it dialed into where, uh, we have a good long-term platform. We want to start, uh, now really focusing on the DTC doing it the right way. But, um, the right way isn't going to be the traditional way where you're going to be running Facebook, Google ads. You got to really focus on the organic content and making sure that you're really marketing to your niche and, and getting into their, um, into their inbox or onto their screen. Ultimately. All right. A couple questions there. Did you buy, uh, any of the big commerce IPO now that you're a big commerce guy? Say that one more time. Did you buy any of the big commerce IPO? They just IPO their stock went from like $25. They're up to a hundred today. They just made a deal with Instagram today uh, that made it jump up even more. Did you get in on that big commerce stock now that you're not a Shopify no, I guy? I should have. Yeah, you totally should have. And you, and you mentioned like changing payment processors. You kind of glazed over it. I know for a fact you guys went through a ton of these, right? And uh, you were taking PayPal payments. Then you set up a sec. you know, you got canceled from PayPal. So you had to set up a new account and your credit cards got blocked and like, wh- is there anywhere you can successfully take payments now without worry? Does Square take that away or is like the world still saying we're not going to touch hemp dollars or CBD dollars? No, Square's great. Um, they do accept CBD transactions. They um, will limit your account 
though. So to minimize their potential uh, issues, you know, um, mainly if you're selling something that's not actually CBD or if you're fraudulent, et cetera. Um, but we've been working with Square pretty much this entire year and it's been a, a great partnership. Um, again, you just got to make sure that as you're growing your business, Square is able to grow with you. Mm-hmm. And that's really just working with your rep and making sure that you have a good relationship. And, and so how do you actually attract customers? That's my last question for you. Like, I know I've helped you with a couple SEO things and you guys have a lot of content on your website. Um, but content's only one way, right? Organic traffic's only one way. And again, Google's still your daddy there, right? They could just be like, we're not, we're not going to help you anymore. And so are you guys running like, uh, you know, content on like tabula or any of those remarketing things? Can you use any Google remarketing? Can you run YouTube remarketing with educational pieces that aren't actually selling your product? Um, so yeah, we're using, you know, platforms like Taboola, Constant Contact, et cetera. Um, and those are, those are good for remarketing for sure. But where we see the most success is again, when we're able to create some really good organic content and then get other hemp in cannabis um, groups to share it. So when we can get those, um, you know, high traffic hemp and cannabis, Facebook, Instagram groups to share one of our posts, that's when we see the best, uh, results. Um, additionally, finding influencers that are really uh, similar to our brand, have the same values and the same ideals, those are going to be great. So um, influencers and organic content, that's the two things that we focus on the most. Well, you know me, if I can help you in any way, I'd love to help you. Uh, this is a little impromptu, but you want to offer a discount code to anybody listening to this? You want to throw a coupon code for like the BK show at evohemp.com? Yeah, let's do 10% off BK show. There you go. I'll put it in the show notes. Uh, I'm addicted to their cookie dough bar, as I've said before. <laughs> go buy their cookie dough bar, buy their hemp seeds, buy their CBD, whatever you want to buy. Like These guys are legit. Uh, and we were saying before, I can find CBD at every gas station in my town. I know this stuff is not uh, regulated. Uh, some of it doesn't look right. Some of it doesn't smell right. These guys are doing it right. So uh, look, I appreciate you coming on, Jordan. I appreciate it very, very much. Uh, how can people reach out to you if they want to get a hold of you? Yeah, absolutely. Um, thanks so much for having me on the show. And anybody can always find me on Instagram at JRSamel, S-A-M-E-L. They could also email me at jordan at evohemp.com. Boom. Well, I appreciate you coming on, buddy. Uh, we'll have to have you back and we can riff on some more, uh, more hemp and uh, THC stuff. Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me. Really glad Jordan came on the show to talk about all of the struggles he's gone through him and his partner Ari in really getting their company going and and getting the world to accept hemp and CBD. And I know these guys aren't done. They have huge, huge goals. uh, And I'm super proud to like sit back and just watch them grow. Uh, They're two incredible entrepreneurs. Jordan's amazing. If you want to reach out to him, I will put his Instagram uh, in the show notes. Also, if you want to check out any of Evo Hemp's products, head over to evohemp.com. Use the code BKSHOW at checkout and save 10%. Uh, again, probably the fifth time I mentioned this, grab a cookie dough bar. You won't regret it, uh, but their CBD products are amazing. Their fruit and nut bars are awesome too. So uh, check out their products. Let me know what you think, and I will see all of you next Wednesday.